This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to another Mother Runner. This is Sarah Bowen Shea. I'm joined in studio by my beloved running partner, Molly Williams. Hello, Molly. Hello, Sarah. It's nice to be here. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. You got in a shower before this. We started recording early. And, I was uh, quick. Yeah. Yeah. I came home. I had to call Equifax because I had a credit thing. Uh-huh. It came up. It ended up being nothing. But I like, you know. So yeah, I, you're on that Equifax. Thing, I, got, I, on say, it, I yeah, that. got on Equifax and I got my yogurt, got in the shower and got here before Alex. Oh. <laughs> once again got here before alex (laughs) even though i'd i'd said come on over i have fresh baked zucchini chocolate chip muffins and he's like fresh coffee Mm -hmm. and i looked over and jack had made coffee so even with that we couldn't get him here on time Uh, he was he was on time wasn't he just barely didn't he you you got in right under the buzzer i think (laughs) it's not in print it's not on time and i'd also like to point out that the overpass over 39th was a zoo. Oh, yeah. Okay, I really... <laughs> and there were no technical difficulties this I morning. I won't have my name dragged through the mud. Not this year. <laughs> that was so last year. Turn over a new leaf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of um, uh, this year, uh, Malls, uh, what's your January found change tally? A whopping 79 cents, Sarah. Now, are you kidding me? Why? That's it? Yeah, that's it. Oh my, I'm almost embarrassed to tell you. I know, I know. Oh, you moved to But you're going to anyway. I am going to anyway. But I want to say it very, very quietly. I found $4.44. And a- Mother Rudder. That's what I have to say. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. And I found the first coin I found of the year was a Romanian ten bonnie. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but you know, foreign coin. Okay, so. I found Bitcoin. Yeah, Lots that, of it. that is our joke. That's that, our joke. That yeah. we're cracking ourselves up. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> but now that Bit- Bitcoin's going down in value, so uh, it's not worth as much anymore. Uh, yeah, the Romanian yeah. money is better. Right. But I, I wasn't feeling well for a while. That's true. You know, so I went from my knee problems to uh, neck problems. Mm-hmm. I don't know, just slept wrong or something. And mm-hmm. um, but it's getting better. But I took like a whole week of doing nothing. And I just slept and slept and slept. I slept like 10 hours a night every night. And you said you were having to still wake up with your alarm. Oh, yeah. like, uh-huh. I, I could have kept sleeping. I could have slept 12 hours. And uh, you're like a bear. Yeah, I feel I feel much better. Uh-huh. And all my knee pain is gone. And my neck pain is going away. I, I have more energy. I think it was have you haven't done the podcast on uh Oh, the lowdown on feeling rundown. Yeah, even that one. No, that one's in a couple months. Yeah, I I think they're going to say it's good to have some rest periods. Mm -hmm. I think it did my body good. Mm -hmm. Not everybody is a Sarah Bowen (laughs) Shay. Going out, making, finding imaginary money. I have not seen this for. How did you find four dollars? Uh, well, so you know, I found a one dollar bill. bill, and the rest of it was change. Yeah, I just found a lot of quarters. Mother runner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Seventy nine cents. Found two pennies this morning. I know. You found nothing. I didn't bring that up, did I? 
No, I didn't. <laughs> Kept that to myself. Hey, but I would like to say that I, you did, after you found that change, you said, oh, you can have the inside lane. And I deferred because I am wearing my new Knox gear Tracer 360 light up. It's not quite a vest, but yeah. boy, it, it made us very visible. And I was really, I felt like I was taking one for the team by going out it, in front it of It was us. uncharacteristically valiant of you, but that was nice. <laughs> I did appreciate that because you were very visible. It's a great vest, by the way. It is. It's really good. It's got this, I don't know, was LED kind of lights in the LED tubing. LED like, kind of like little tubing. In the tubing and, and it then, changes colors and, and can't you program the colors? You can program. I didn't know that. So um, you could do like and game Chicago colors or... Oh, that's Christmas so funny. colors, <gasps> Valentine's colors. Oh, I should I should be doing Valentine's colors? Yeah, yeah, no, I just I press the button once and whatever comes on comes on. Yeah, um, that's game colors. I love that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so well, for St. Patrick's Day, I'll do green. Uh-huh. Yeah, and there's all these night things now, like naked bike rides and mm-hmm. that might only shows. be in Portland. Perhaps. Although with naked bike ride, that would sort of be not naked, wouldn't it? <laughs> You'd well, have to strategically place you, no, it. No, but I mean, it wouldn't cover anything because the thing only has the the Tracer 360 only has one band and it's underneath the breast. So it might still work for naked sure, bike ride because yeah. you want to be visible. Mm-hmm. And it also holds things else? up a little bit. There you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a speaking... use they never thought of. <laughs> so, but speaking of lights, you went out twice this weekend to a local light festival yeah so it was the portland winter light festival which i think this might be the second year might be wrong about it and it's a free event and they had uh, light sculptures around so ellie her friend chloe and i went down to omsi which is our science museum where they had a big exhibit and we walked around and and that was kind of was pretty fun um, and then the next night we went out to north portland um, where they only had a few mm-hmm. exhibits it, it was bizarre. I haven't told you about this yet, have I? Yeah, you did. You told me when we were uh, driving to yeah. Cycle Bar. Okay, so it, it was kind of bizarre. So there were three events that you were supposed to be able three and installations. Spoke, and you told me they had a lousy website, so it was hard to figure out where everything was. It was. And so we found the first one, which was really kind of interesting, but uh, they did all their light displays out of things they'd gotten out of landfills. Um, so it's Portland. Yeah, because it's Portland. And then they had this band plan that would do like, you know, two notes at a time, you know, it was very, it was very Portland. And everything looked like there was Fred Armiston waiting to do a sketch. Pretty much like stuff that, you know, your middle schooler could do. But but it was interesting. Hey, well, hey, hey, my middle. You're, it, it was interesting, you know, so so we saw it and we we're like, OK, so then there was another one that was supposed to be at the brewery, which was right next door. So we went down to the brewery and there's a scaffolding with a couple lights on it, like uh, like an entryway kind of thing. Like, you know, you go into a restaurant and there might be some lights. Up yeah, there. it was right. like that. So we're like looking around for what the installation is. And we go in the bar. They don't know where it is. We start walking through this building. There's offices in there this lady's like looking at us as we're walking around we end up in a pug cafe which is completely empty but it's full of pictures of pugs and then they're plastic donuts on all the tail as in dogs dogs. yeah Yeah. nobody around all this artwork around we find a sign for the the light show we're like oh this must be it no it goes back into the recycled light two-tonal show so we go wandering back around the lady comes out of her office she's like are you you looking for the light show yeah she's like oh it's around the corner like well there's supposed to be one here she's like well i don't know anything about it so we figured out then the scaffolding thing was the display so that was bizarre so then we go around the corner to find this other one and it's in an old shipyard so you got to go down the railroad tracks take a left go down kind of this dark lane into the shipyard where they're building tiny houses (laughs) again because it's portland because it's portland and they've got this big uh, metal kind of 
Burning Man sort of statue guy, and he mm-hmm. shoots fire out of his hands, and they do it uh, in a rhythm like, and so they've got that going on. They've got fire in barrels that they've um, put designs in, and then there's beehives all around too, because it's Portland. <laughs> and then there's a display with the beehives, and you go look at the bees, and then there's a ship that's moored uh, just beyond and people were going in and off the ship so we're going to look a ship it's a 1946 tugboat that they have a recording studio on oh yeah you were alex do you know anything about that alex we need a recording studio on a on a a tugboat on the on the tug near a pug yeah they were having a party and they had a christmas tree lit up uh anyway the whole thing was bizarre it was an interesting evening. But I, you said to me, you said it was very old Portland. It was very old school Portland, where it used to be in Portland, you'd just be walking around, and you'd be like, oh, we've got some clowns yeah, on bikes. Yeah, here's a pickle museum. And, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, right. A temporary pickle museum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, goats have moved into this block. Sure, why not? You know, you see naked people running around, and uh-huh. you just don't see it quite as much, or it's more orchestrated. That's and, exactly, that's the ticket. Now it's cultivated yes, strangeness, rather yes. than just random strangeness. Organic strangeness, where you yeah. used to be, you'd just be like, oh, well, of course, here, here it is. But it, was, but it was a nice evening. Um, well, I had a little more... Um, uh, I knew what I was getting into. John and I saw Katy Perry and Carly Rae Jepsen oh. on Friday night. And talk about a show. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, I have to say Carly Rae Jepsen was over far too quickly. She did an eight-song set, and it was over in 30 minutes. It was very um, perfunctory, um, which I felt was kind of what she'd been hired to do. That it was definitely, she was not the main act. And she, you know, and she talked, she was, she mm-hmm. said, Katy Perry's name several times during it. Are you so excited for Katy Perry? And I thought, you know what, Carly Rae, you're a star in your own right. Like, let's give you a little breathing room here mm-hmm. um, because she just has a phenomenal voice. And and for folks who haven't listened to her most recent full CD called Emotion, I highly recommend it. It is so good. So good. It is just upbeat. It makes you smile. It's catchy. The lyrics are really good. Um. So, and then Katy Perry, Um. she, her show and it was definitely a show not just a concert was two hours long and oh my gosh numerous set changes numerous costume changes um amazing backup dancers amazing props you know things coming down from the ceiling her being kind of transported on what looked like saturn with its rings and she's up there playing the guitar and Oh my gosh. And then like when she would go off stage to change, there'd be contortionists who would come out. And so it was kind of part Cirque du Soleil, part Katy Perry. Cool. Um, Yeah. And she, I mean, she's very charismatic. We had great seats so that Mm -hmm. um, the stage kind of came out. And so when she was at the end of the stage, I mean, we were really, really close to her. Um, That said, I have a theory that she, a lot of her, um, big hits, her big original hits. So firework, teenage dream, California girl, girls were done quite a while ago and either her voice has changed or she has um they were so um auto-tuned uh, yeah auto-tuned i'd want to use a less um derogatory term than that a um produced they were so highly produced mm. that in live she can't do it mm. the same way what do you think about that theory alex um i think either one of those are possible yeah, yeah. so so that uh yeah, because it's production. You're our producer. <laughs> I used the word produce, so I had to look at you. Um, so uh, so that 
she she varies them so they're not like they are on the cd they were very good Mm -hmm. but um she also she has a very rich almost deep voice in real life and so um there was a depth to her music but it wasn't as bubblegum pop happy Mm. as it and so you know if you're wanting to hear you know teenage dream just like it was mm-hmm. it wasn't like that mm-hmm. so um but it was it was fun and i would never would have gone to just a Katy perry concert so that carly ray was the catnip that got me in there haha <laughs> catnip because of cat katie perry's fans um and um there are katie cats whereas i thought it was because they are uh catty uh katie purry um <laughs> <laughs> because I think I've seen like little memes of Katie Purry or somebody has a cat. I don't know. Anyway. So, um, oh, and they got a, a girl, a 12 year old girl up on stage. They got a dad up on stage and she and he did a, um, a basketball competition uh, as part of Swish Swish, that song. And with these huge basketballs and Katie made one basket and the dad didn't make any. And I couldn't help but think, yeah, is he a plant? Cause the 12 year old definitely seemed like a plant. Mm-hmm. Um, but so Anyway, but John and I had a really great time, and it was very sweet. We um, were walking back to the car afterwards, and I was like, so, John, did you have a good time? He said, yeah, my favorite part, Mom, was seeing how much you enjoyed it. Aw, that's very nice. And I'm like, that's just so John. Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. for all his um, high energy, slightly annoying at times ways, he has has a huge heart. So, um, which kind of leads us into our topic yeah valentine's day yeah and and um that this is heart health month that's right um so we are talking today about matters of the heart and we'll be talking to two guests a cardiologist and a mother runner who suffered a sudden cardiac arrest um in her early 40s we'll be joined by those guests right after these brief messages stay with us our first guest is Anne-Marie Navarre, MD and PhD, a cardiologist and epidemiologist specializing in prevention. Dr. Navarre is an assistant professor of medicine at Duke University School of Medicine and a member of the Duke Clinical Research Institute. She's also a cat mom and an avid runner. Uh, welcome, Dr. Navarre. Is it okay if we call you Anne-Marie? Oh, please do. So, Anne-Marie, tell us about your running. When, when, with all that you're doing, do you ever get a time to run? And don't tell me you get up at 3 o'clock in the morning. You can't be that type A, but go ahead. No, you know, I, I actually didn't get into a regular running habit until the last uh, few years when my schedule became a little bit more manageable after I was done with training. Okay. I'm, I'm not a morning person, so I, I usually run in the afternoons after the after the end of a long Much work day. Much more of reasonable, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Speaks to your high intelligence, but go ahead. <laughs> so what, what, got, what got you started running? What type of races do you do, if at all? Um, I, I got started running mostly because I needed something that was convenient, and I was doing a lot of traveling for work, and it was a nice way for me to be able to see the different places that I was going. Um, I think a three- to five-mile run around most cities usually gets you the sort of architectural and landscape highlights. Oh. So uh, it was really a convenience thing you for me. You are speaking my love language, saying the architecture and landscape. I love it. <laughs> That's definitely what I look at when I go to a new city. Um, so, all right, well, let's just dump, jump right into the deep end. Um, and with some, we like to get questions from our Facebook page. So I put up yesterday that Molly and I would be talking to you and we got quite a host of questions. So this one, we're just, we're just going to dive right in. And 
Annie asks, and this seemed to be a common concern of people, um, is long distance running like half marathons, marathons, ultras actually bad for your heart? And Carly had a similar question that said, we always hear these stories about people in great health who drop dead while out running. Why does that happen? Is there anything people can do to prevent it? Yeah, so these are great questions. And I really sort of split it up into two. There's really two fundamental questions here. The first is a question around sudden cardiac death. And the, the second is a question around kind of long distance or endurance running. Um, I'll, I'll talk about the endurance part first. Um, so this is really an area of controversy mm-hmm. around epidemiologists. And um, the sort of summary for folks who haven't been following this debate in the literature is that there's been some observational studies published, particularly in the last five to seven years, that um, suggest that while running is good for you, at the really higher doses of running, you start to lose some of the mortality benefit. So if you look at the groups of people that run um, you know, more than four hours a week at pretty quick paces, mm-hmm. they tend to not have as much of a mortality benefit as the people who are in the more light to moderate group. Mm. Um, there's a lot of kind of uh, questions about the methodology of those studies, and it's really hard to make too many conclusions on those kind of data because you're not randomizing people to, okay, you run a lot and you run right. a little. So there's all these other factors about extreme runners that you know, that may contribute to the mortality that has nothing to do with the running Mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, if you're looking to run for heart health, I think the data are very clear. Um, And this is really the story that I think should come out of these papers, which is that it doesn't take a lot of running to get the heart benefits of running. So even, you know, one to two hours a week at a, you know, slow to moderate pace, you're talking you know, nine, 10 minute miles is, is really enough to help you live longer. So for the, for the majority of people out there who are trying to get heart benefits from running, you don't have to do a lot. Sure. Sure. Now, and, and I, I yeah, but I, there are, oh, I was going to say in the mother runner community, nine to 10 minute miles are that put, that's more, yeah. we call, we call that middle to ahead of the middle of the pack, you know? So uh, we definitely take slow uh, to mean 11, 12, 13, 14 minute miles. So I think, I, I, well, and- go ahead. Yeah, and I think that's a good. I think that's a good point. Is a lot of it's also kind of subjective. So one of the biggest studies on this came out of Copenhagen, and they just asked people to quantify in their own perception: oh. Are you running slow, medium, or fast? Mm-hmm. Um, so in your own perception, if you're running slow or medium, you're fine. Mm. You're still getting the heart benefits from running, mm-hmm. um, and it's whatever slow or medium is to you. Nice. Um, there is a little bit of more recent stuff that's come out that's a little bit more intriguing looking at kind of the physiologic changes that happen after really long bouts of running. Mm-hmm. So there's one study that came out that showed that uh, marathon distance um, type runners might uh, have higher rates of plaque deposits mm-hmm. in their arteries. Mm-hmm. But the message was a little bit mixed because the types of plaques they got appeared to be the, the safer kinds, the kinds mm-hmm. that are less likely to cause a heart attack. Mm-hmm. There's also some stuff that suggests that maybe the really long distance runners can get some um, fibrosis or scarring in the chambers of their Mm -hmm. heart that might put them at increased risk for a heart rhythm problem called atrial fibrillation. Mm -hmm. So there's probably at some point um, either diminishing return or there may be some increased risk for other heart conditions from really, really long distance running. Um, But you know, the most of the people that I know that do that type of serious long distance running aren't doing it 
just for their heart. They're doing it for all sorts of other mm -hmm. reasons. It makes them happy. It mm -hmm. fixes their stress. It gets them outside. Mm -hmm. There's a hundred reasons why people run and preventing a heart attack or living longer is only one of them. So for the people who want to run long distances because it makes them happy, I don't think the data are so compelling that they need to stop. But if you're really just looking to run and your only goal is to reduce heart disease, you probably don't need to do it for more than about three times a week. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the people that have died with the ultra races and the marathons, you know, right at the finish line, is there any particular thing that they're dying of or is it just a variety of things? Oh, that's a, it's a great question. So that's really the second part of it. So the first part is, you know, if you're trying to look at the cumulative benefit of running, how much should you be running? But the second issue is these really high profile cases of folks that die at the end of a marathon or a long distance. Um, and there's really two different things that people die of. There's more in young people, uh, previously undiagnosed, often hereditary heart conditions. The most common one that's been seen in autopsy studies is a condition called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, where people have uh, abnormally thick uh, chambers of their hearts. Hmm. Um, and then the other half of folks t is people with regular coronary disease. So hmm. the cholesterol buildup in the heart arteries from things like hypertension, high cholesterol, diabetes, smoking, and something happens at the end of a race that kind of uh, brings out a heart attack in people who are predisposed to heart disease to begin with. So it's, it's sort of a split between those two, those two causes mm -hmm. um, of, of what causes those heart, heart attacks at the end of races. So mm -hmm. could you, before we go on with other questions, could you um, tell us the difference pretty quickly between the heart attack and sudden cardiac arrest? Because I got to say, before I started looking into this topic, I guess I didn't split it up in my mind. Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. And it's probably worth spending a little bit of time on this because this is something that gets a lot of press and a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. um, so sudden cardiac death is the, the medical term for when the heart stops pumping and it can do it for, because it had an abnormal heart rhythm, mm -hmm. an electrical problem, or it can do it for other reasons, like a blood clot in the lungs, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but when we talk about sudden cardiac death, we're talking about the heart just stopping. Now, a heart attack is a bigger term for anything that causes not enough blood flow to reach the muscle of the heart and part of the heart muscle dies. So sometimes people can have heart attacks that lead to sudden cardiac death, gotcha. but not all sudden cardiac death is from a heart attack. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about sudden cardiac death at the finish line, it's usually thought to be um, these abnormal heart rhythms that lead people's hearts to stop. But those heart rhythms can come from different things, either these genetic conditions or regular old heart disease. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing that's really important to emphasize, I think probably doesn't get enough discussion around all of this. There's a lot of talk about should people get better screening or should every runner have mm -hmm. an EKG to look for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or are there, you know, things individual people can do uh, to, to see if they're at risk for these things or not. Um, but in fact, the, the number one predictor of whether or not you, you live from one of these sudden cardiac arrests is whether or not you get bystander CPR. Mm. So in, in the case series of all of this, the people who survived are the people who got CPR from a bystander and they got it quickly. Mm -hmm. And the people who got defibrillated quickly. So if there was a automatic external defibrillator mm -hmm. uh, close at hand that can get to the person. So probably the number one way to reduce the number of deaths from these type of events at the end of races is, would be if every single runner was trained in bystander CPR mm -hmm. uh, and if every long race had an AED available. 
most of these deaths happen actually towards the end of the race. So you, you don't really need one all throughout, really just sort of need it towards the finish line. So I think it, it tells mm-hmm. people that during this heart, you know, month that emphasizes heart health, that people should, in addition to thinking of their own health, think outward and think of how they could help other people. And so taking a CPR class might be a good move to make. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the International Marathon Medical Directors Association actually have put out some guidelines for things that people can do to decrease their risk of sudden cardiac death oh. at the end of races. Mm-hmm. Now, these guidelines are, are they're, they're their opinion. There's not a lot of data that, you know, can tell you, you know, whether or not these work. But um, the, the recommendations are actually pretty um, straightforward. Only drink when you're thirsty. Don't over drink. Don't mm-hmm. take... Um, uh, anti-inflammatory medicines like ibuprofen or naproxen um, during races. Eat mm-hmm. food with sodium or salt during long races. Uh, get a regular checkup. Uh, take a baby aspirin on the morning of a race. So oh, again, I, I don't, I don't know the, the data behind all of these individual recommendations, but this, you know, it's a pretty, um, pretty smart community of people that think about heart health and races and their recommendations are available online. Maybe we could even put a link on the, on the website after this is over to them. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. I'd love if if we could do that. Um, Thank you. Thank you for knowing that. Hmm. So we can run to help strengthen our heart. We can go get to our doctor and get checked out. What other things can we do to decrease our risk of having a heart attack? Yeah, um, I think February being Heart Health Month, it's really important for us to think about all the other ways that we can do to help, things we can do to help our heart besides just running. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the fact that half of the heart attacks at the finish line are in, in people because they have regular old heart disease really proves that exercise and even regular running over your entire lifetime doesn't make you immune from heart disease, mm-hmm. that all of the other risk factors still play in. So um, a lot of basic things that a lot of women just... And, and people in general don't do. So get your cholesterol checked at least every five years. See your doctor regularly, check your blood pressure and um, treat it if it's higher than it should be based on the current guidelines. Mm-hmm. Don't smoke. Mm-hmm. If you um, have diabetes, keep it under control. And if you're overweight or have other risk factors for diabetes, um, you know, address those risk factors. So, um, you know, being a runner doesn't actually keep you from having to do all of those other things to, to address your heart health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where are you on the baby aspirin every day? Do you think people should do that or not? Um, the short answer is no. I don't think that everybody needs to be on a baby aspirin every day. In fact, aspirin does confer an increased risk of bleeding and can actually be serious, serious bleeding. If people have a high predicted risk of a heart attack because they have other conditions like high cholesterol or they've had a heart attack before, they have diabetes, they probably would benefit from aspirin. But mm-hmm. there are actual ways that your doctor can estimate that risk, put you into a calculator and see whether or not you would benefit. Okay. Oh. I actually think probably more people should be on a statin than an aspirin. Um, hmm. Statins are are on a safety profile, safer than aspirin. Um, if you look at the number of bad things that happen to people on statins versus the bad things that happen to people on aspirin, statins are safer. And um, probably over the long run, do more to prevent the development of that plaque in the heart that causes heart disease than aspirin as a prevention. Now, once you already have heart disease, you really need both. Mm-hmm. But if you're talking about preventing, I'm a much bigger fan of cholesterol-lowering medications than I am the uh, antithrombotic medicines like aspirin. Mm. 
Hmm. Oh, okay. And everybody's so against statins because of the side effects and sort of the stigma with it. So that's really good to hear that it's safer than the aspirin in your view. Well, yeah, it's when you say everybody's against statins, it's it's an it's sort of a vocal minority, I think. Um, Mm. If you ask most doctors and certainly if you ask cardiologists, are statins safe and are they effective? We would pretty much all agree there's we've got hundreds of thousands of patients have been studied to show that statins are not only safe, but they lower your risk of a heart attack by or developing heart disease by about a third. So mm. pretty, pretty, pretty potent benefit yeah. um, and, and much stronger than what you see with aspirin, for example. Um, well, let me clarify. And, and I guess in my peer group, uh, in the women that I've talked to, they're like, oh, I don't want to go on a statin. I'm going to try uh, what is it? Red rice yeast or something, you know, other things. Yeah. Red yeast rice extract. Interestingly, the active yeah. ingredient in that is um, the same active ingredient in lovastatin. So um, I don't want to, you know, for people who who uh, don't want to take a statin who are taking red yeast rice extract, they're actually taking a statin. They just don't know it. <laughs> It just it just has a hippie vibe around it, so it seems uh, less yeah, just, uh, big, just big pharma. A, it's it just does. well regulated by the FDA. You know, statins are generic. Nobody's making money off of them these days. You know, I, I only use statins that are available for three bucks a month. Um, uh-huh. They're probably the most well studied drugs out there. Um, and uh, and 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 there's been you know people worry about do they cause, you know, uh, muscle side effects? Do they decrease your strength? And, and none of that's really um, borne out when you compare it to a sugar pill. So oh, interesting. Know, yeah, if you ask, I've heard that too. Yeah. If you ask people, you know, have you had muscle aches in the last 30 days? About a third of people are going to tell you yes. So that's true. <laughs> people are on a statin or if they're not on a statin, it's just if you're on a statin, you have something to blame. Right, right. Maybe it was that they helped their friend move the couch that weekend or uh, yes, went exactly. on, did a hard hill workout. Or they ran like hills, that. yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but the, the general concept, though, that, you know, people don't want to take medicine is, is, is great. It's reasonable. And um, there are really good ways to address cholesterol through diet and exercise. So following a heart-healthy diet and exercising is, is, is the f- most important way to reduce your risk of heart disease. And if you know, I, I recommend statins for people who have risk in spite of that or who have high cholesterol in spite of that. So not instead of. It's it's really not a it's not a replacement for exercise and diet. You can't have a cheeseburger and sit on your, your bum all day um, because you're taking a statin. You still have to do what you're supposed to. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So and um, on our Facebook page, Roberta was wondering, what are heart warning symptoms that women can look for? You know, we've all heard that um, heart attacks present themselves very differently in women than in men, but it seems like oftentimes the media talks about men. So tell us about women. It's it's a great question. So there's a lot of, um, of talk about how women's symptoms for heart attacks are different than men. And the story is actually not quite so, you know, we're not actually so different than men as, uh, <laughs> as the story might make it sound. So it's, it's still the, the number one uh, you know, symptom and, and sign of a heart attack in women and men is chest pain or chest pressure. So women are more likely to have some of the more atypical signs, but it's it's not like you know heart chest pain over the left side of your chest in a woman is is you know it happens. And a lot of women with heart attacks have very classic signs of of chest pain. So warning signs would be you know chest pain, a squeezing pain, a tightness in the chest sweating, 
Um, women tend to more than men have pain in the shoulder or in the neck or the arm. Uh, pain is often confused with heartburn or indigestion. So, you know, if, if, if you feel like every time you're walking upstairs, you're getting mm. indigestion, it might not be indigestion. It might mm -hmm. actually mm -hmm. be your heart. Um, other signs can be, you know, dizziness or passing out or uh, palpitations or um, with exertion. Those can be signs of, of heart mm -hmm. blockages, too. So women are a little bit less likely than men to have the typical, you know, my left chest hurts and there's an elephant sitting on it and it feels like I'm having a heart attack. But um, uh, but mm -hmm. it but it happens. So it, it's you know, we can't say that. Um, it's all that different. I think most heart attacks mm. feel pretty similar okay. between men and okay. women. So you, you touch a little bit on a question uh, or on something that um, Erica and then a lot of other people chimed in about, which was, um, she said, I sometimes get heart palpitations. Uh, she said she's had a 24-hour monitor twice and a stress test. I've been told she's fine, but it's still unnerving. What can I do to reduce them or make them go away? And what are some common causes of heart palpitations? And like I said, on our Facebook page, like, I don't know, 10 or 15 women chimed in. We were like, oh, yeah, you know, I get that when I do a hard workout or sometimes when I'm just sitting at my desk or, you know, so it sounds like it's a pretty, I don't know, common cause of concern. Sure. So I, I, th I probably have to have some disclaimer here that this isn't like official exactly. medical sure. advice. Yeah. You know, people need to talk to the doctor, blah, blah, blah. But um, palpitations can have a bunch of different causes. Most patients that I see with palpitations um, have either completely normal heart rhythms and they're just more sensitive to changes in their heart rate. So they, they feel it more dramatically when their heart's mm -hmm. going fast. Um, or they have a heart rate that is much more variable. So their heart goes faster more easily than other people. Or they have very benign or not scary causes of palpitations like premature contractions where you get early beats. And usually those um, don't cause any long-term problems. And people who are symptomatic from them, you can use medicine to make them hmm. go away and make people feel better. Um, and, and there are different medications. So for folks who have palpitations that are bothering them, um, sometimes just knowing mm -hmm. that they're safe and aren't going to kill them is enough to make them not so bothersome. But other times we do yeah, use medicine. Um, but there are some people who have palpitations where it's mm -hmm. really dangerous. So there are some people who have abnormal heart rhythms that are causing the palpitations. And that's why it's important to talk to your doctor and sometimes go to a cardiologist to get the type of monitor to see, are you having palpitations from a, a benign, not scary mm -hmm. cause, or your palpitations may be a, a sign of something more dangerous right, happening? Right. I know that when I've had it, I'm like, oh, this is it. You know, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Like, should I write a note to my family that I was feeling? Pal and then, you know, by the time I make a decision whether I should like write a note, it's all over with. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, um, so speaking of um, heart rate and, and that type of thing, um, in our Train Like a Mother Club, we have numerous plans that involve heart rate training. So it's not wasn't surprising to me that we got a bunch of questions, such as this one from Lindsay and other gals who are wondering, she says she's been diagnosed with hyperthyroidism and she has a pretty low resting heart rate in the low to mid 40s. Um, how does this affect her heart rate training zones? Um, Great question. So the first piece of that that I would say is that you need to make sure that any any conditions that are potentially affecting your heart rate are well controlled before you get into any sort of heart rate training program. So if your hyperthyroidism is not controlled, I would not recommend starting on a heart rate based training program. Um, so, you know, make sure that you get your thyroid parameters, for example, in regular ranges. But 
there are lots of reasons why people might have different than normal heart rates. So they're maybe they're on a beta blocker because they have heart disease and their heart rate just doesn't get up past a certain level. Or maybe they have a medical condition that makes their heart rate higher, like POTS, um, that makes them kind of run at higher heart rates, for example. So for a lot of people, you, you can follow the sort of things that are published out there in terms of rules of thumb for how to estimate your max heart rate. There's different calculations or formulas that you can use and then train in different heart rate zones. But that's probably not going to work for everyone, particularly people who have some of these other conditions. So I guess just to reverse that, the, the sort of heart rate definition for moderate intensity exercise is between 50 and 70% of your peak mm-hmm. heart rate and high intensity is somewhere between 70 and 85%. So, you know, you can estimate it with a calculator, but probably the best thing to do is, um, is actually strap yourself into a really good heart rate mm-hmm. monitor and, um, and there's some you know, different protocols of hill running or sprints where you can actually see what your maximum heart mm-hmm. rate is um, and then train that way. But for folks who don't want to do that or whose heart rates don't follow the rules, um, really the goal, you can sort of use your perceived exertion right. rather than have to like look at what the heart rate is. So for moderate intensity, I, I tell my patients that you should be able to talk but not mm-hmm. sing. In high intensity, you shouldn't be able to speak more than a few words in a row. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I bet if you look at where your heart rate, you know, for those folks who are on a heart rate training plan and they look at their heart rate and they try to sing or they try to talk, it'll probably correlate pretty closely to, you know, where they actually are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. We talk and sing. We shouldn't though. <laughs> so we should, Our neighbors would say. We, we should, should go high. Yeah. Fast enough. We shouldn't sing. Yeah. Good. Well, for me, it keeps, I, I have, I love my heart rate. Um, I love running with my heart rate monitor because it, it keeps me uh-huh. honest. Um, you know, when I'm, when I'm you know, really tired and, oh God, I'm just killing myself. I look down and, you know, my heart rate's in a kind of moderate zone. I go, oh, well, maybe it's not so hard. And then I, I run faster. Other times I really feel like I've just pushed it and I like, man, I was, that was great. And I look down and my heart rate's really high. I, it sort of reinforces like, Yeah, that was good. So uh-huh. for me, uh-huh. I use it as a, as a more of a, a behavioral coaching thing than as a, um, mm-hmm. you know, trying to stay certain amounts in different zones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good for you. All right. So Catherine asks, I've heard something about calcium levels being related to heart health, increased risk of heart attack. Can you please go into that a bit more? Great question. So calcium has gotten even more confusing because now we're doing this thing called coronary artery calcium scoring or CAC, where you can get a low dose CAT scan of your heart and see if you have evidence of plaque buildup. And that's one way for people who are sort of on the fence about whether or not they should be on a statin or are kind of trying to figure out what's the risk of a heart attack to help understand more about their risk than you can get from just cholesterol and blood pressure alone. But that's a measurement of the calcium that's already deposited in the heart. Um, What I think the question is asking is about calcium intake and the safety Mm -hmm. of calcium supplements. Mm -hmm. So on this one, um, I actually would default to the experts. And this was a fun partnership. The National Osteoporosis Foundation and the American Society of Preventive Medicine actually came out with a consensus statement sorry, American Society of Preventive Cardiology had a consensus statement about this. And what they said is really that after reviewing all the literature, um, including sort of randomized trials where some people get calcium and some people don't, there's really no evidence that calcium and vitamin D supplements are bad for the heart. Um, Mm. But but they do emphasize that you probably shouldn't have too much. And that's probably true for everything in life. 
um, that what younger women need about a thousand milligrams a day and older women need 1200 milligrams a day. And if you can get it through diet alone, then you shouldn't be taking a supplement. So the supplement should only be to sort of fill in that gap between what you can't get through your diet. And, and most people would say that it's probably better and more physiologic to get your calcium through diet sources rather than supplements. So hmm. if you don't take, if you don't eat any calcium in your diet, you probably should take a supplement to the recommended level per day, but more is not better in that case and don't overdo it. Mm-hmm. And with the vitamin D here in the Pacific Northwest where we don't get any light, I always feel like we need to have vitamin D. Uh, can we still take that or should we? Molly asked the exact question I was back thinking. Off. Like, yeah. We... <laughs> I felt like I was getting rickets one year. <laughs> I, had that I, did. I had that problem as a resident in training. I actually got my vitamin D level checked and it was like in the single digits. Um, so... See? Yeah. Where, where were you during your during that? Inside. I was, in, I was in the hospital. I was in Durham, North Carolina where the weather is beautiful and it's sunny and I saw none uh-huh. of it. Um, so... Uh, Vitamin D, I think it's it's safe and um, it's uh, it's probably you know unless you're outside a lot, um, then you you know particularly in the Pacific Northwest, you're at risk for vitamin D deficiency, which puts you at risk for not just um, you know bone loss but other other issues too. So I I would I think vitamin D supplements are safe for people who have low levels of vitamin D. Personally, I take a vitamin D supplement, although. Um, you know, the caveat on this is I have, I am not an epidemiologist on vitamin D. So there's probably mm-hmm. people who know more about this, but I'll tell you personally, I take it. And, um, uh, as, as far as I can tell from the, the general groups, there's, there's not a lot of risk to taking vitamin D, but again, you know, in moderation, there's no, re- you know, the supplements are not like, um, other thing, you know, it's not like money or time where more is better, <laughs> you know, like there is, you, you need enough and you don't need more. Uh-huh. Um, so, and staying on the topic of nutrition, um, what about how to, um, potassium and magnesium and maybe, you know, sweating out a ton of that enter into, um, heart health and, you know, heart incidents. Who, um, we think about potassium and magnesium issues and, and sodium issues more kind of in a short-term setting, you know, what happens to your electrolytes at the end of long races. Um, mm-hmm. so, um, really over the long run, it's, there's not like a, a benefit, for example, for taking a regular magnesium supplement. Some people who mm-hmm. have kidney problems actually should not take potassium supplements because um, if their kidneys don't work 100%, then they're actually at risk of having heart rhythm problems from having too high of mm. potassium. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, if you have but normal, let's say somebody, you have normal, yeah, let's say somebody's just like like sweating a ton and you know that sort of thing. Um, so interestingly, what what there's a, there's concern about you know you sweat a lot and you're losing all of these um, you know you're losing all of this water. What ends up happening is people actually collapse of hyponatremia, meaning too low of sodium because they drink too much water without right, all of yeah. the all of the electrolytes. And I think that's why the um, those, those guidelines from the Marathon Medical Directors Association mm-hmm. do recommend um, taking something in with sodium um, mm-hmm. on long races, so 10K or more, which isn't, I mean, that's long for me, but not long for some people. Um, uh-huh. So I think sodium is probably the bigger issue than potassium or magnesium, um, but okay. having low potassium or magnesium can put you at risk for things like muscle cramps. Um, and, I, and, and those electrolytes do exist in the various you know, sports drinks and other things. 
Yeah, we're we're big fans of noon, and it has the sodium, the potassium, the magnesium, mm-hmm. all those good things. Yeah, yeah. So let's go back to the topic of um, heart rate, and um, because we got a question from Jen, who was on the flip side of the woman earlier, who was saying how low her heart rate was, and she said, um, she, Jen says, should I be concerned that my resting heart rate is around 80 beats per minute, even though I run about 40 miles a week and I don't smoke, rarely drink and have a cup of tea per day. Um, she said, it seems like most runners have a lower resting heart rate, but I'm worried because mine is always so high. Yeah. So what I hear Jen asking is, is she doing something wrong because all the other runners got their heart rates down by running all the time and hers <laughs> right. isn't? Um, you know, no, I, there's a lot. Of, normal is really variable for lots of people. And um, so some people's resting heart rates just are higher than others. So, you know, if she's been, you know, at 80 beats per minute, it's a normal resting heart rate for you know, for an adult. So that should be fine. The fact that it hasn't gone done, gone down with regular running doesn't mean she's doing anything wrong. I don't think we fully understand what are the factors that lead to the changes in your autonomic system that let slow your heart, your basal heart rate down. So, you know, it, it varies. And I think that's why we think about, you know, it's more important to figure out what's your personal max heart rate when you're running, Mm -hmm. train to your personal max, not to what a formula says. So, Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that's going to change over time. As you get older, your heart rate will slow down as you take different medications or as, you know, you have babies or you're pregnant, all of those things change. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, don't, don't worry about comparing yourself so much to other people. And, you know, when you're doing heart rate training, you're thinking about moderate or high intensity for you, not for, you know, other women that might be like you, or you think should be like you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So getting back to nutrition, uh, what do you think about different types of fats in your diet, like fish oil or coconut oil? How would those affect your heart? It's great. Uh, so there's a lot of, of confusion over diet. And, you know, there's it's actually an area that we know less about than we should. The, there's a couple of things that most cardiologists and, and, you know, for example, the American Heart Association would agree on, which is that in your diet, you should limit the amount of saturated fats and trans fats and limit the amount of added sugars. Those things are pretty consistently bad for the heart. Um, coconut oil is, um, it has been, there's a lot of um, sort of a uh-huh. fad these days. I feel like a lot of people are cooking with it. I think if you really like it for some reason and it tastes great, then great. But I, I actually um, worry a lot about it because it has a lot of saturated huh. fat. So like 60% of it is saturated fat. Really, the, the way you should think about it is if, if it's solid at room mm-hmm. temperature, um, it's probably not the right kind mm-hmm. of fat. So the, the best study that ever looked at a diet, um, and there's problems with it, and people will you know nitpick how it was conducted, but the best study of, um, of, of diet really is, is a randomized trial of the Mediterranean diet where people ate a lot of olive oil, a lot of nuts, a lot of fruits and vegetables, and lean meats. And then for people that drink... Uh, one drink a day for women. Um, and, and those people live mm-hmm. longer. So if you're trying to, you, you know, to have a diet that's going to help you live longer, then I would use olive oil as my fat of choice. I would try to eat lots of tree nuts if you're not allergic, and then focus on lean meats, fruits, and vegetables, and try to eliminate the sugars and trans fats and saturated fats. Uh, fish oil you asked about um, usually is available mm-hmm. as a supplement. There's um, you know, unfortunately, while that while fish oil can make your numbers look better, 
there there haven't been for kind of the general population studies that show that on a whole it's going to do a lot for your heart health. It's probably not going to hurt mm-hmm. you. Um, I, but you know, it, it hasn't panned out to be a panacea. Now that said, there's some new. There's some, there might be some subpopulations of people, for example, with really high triglycerides or really high risk of heart disease in whom fish oil may confer a benefit. So I, I wouldn't say it's not for everybody. Um, it, I, I don't think it's going to hurt you, but I don't think that the evidence is out there for us all to start taking fish oil to lower our risk of heart disease. Okay. Interesting. The, I mean, coconut oil. I mean, if you spend much time on social media, you, I mean, it's what drove me to, to to go to Trader Joe's and buy a jar of it because it's just like, I mean, for a while there were so many pictures on Instagram of people and their, you know, coconut oil just like slabbed on top of things. And it's like, you know. Yeah. There's always a fad, right? It's, you know, and, and sometimes those fads are things that are good for you. You know, there's a the kale fad and leafy greens, probably yeah. good, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, berries and super berries and all those are probably good. Uh, coconut oil, you know, at, what we know about saturated fat is it's not good for you. And it has a lot of saturated fat in it. Now that the problem is a lot of these, and this is true for supplements too. Y- you can't make the kind of claims about prescription drugs that you can make about supplements mm-hmm. or diet because they're just not as tightly re- regulated. Mm-hmm. So when you're reading some, you know, article about how great coconut oil is, um, who sponsored it, who's paying for it, who's trying to sell you coconut oil at the bottom of that mm-hmm. page. Uh, I, I, I worry a little bit that the, and, and that all these claims are made without much data behind them. And, you know, the little bit that I know about fats makes me worried a lot about coconut mm. oil. My kids will be happy. My older daughter, just like the moment I put any coconut oil, like if I'm cooking like an Indian dish or something and I feel it adds to the flavor, at the end, no matter how many spices and lentils and, you know, cilantro on top, lime on top, whatever, she'll always be like, you cooked this with coconut oil, didn't you? I don't like coconut oil. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like She's like a shark with one drop of blood in, in water. <laughs> she just knows. She, she just knows. She does. So, um, so all right, well, um, Mary had a question. But I would oh, say, I would say it's in moderation, right? Like if you love the way that the coconut oil, t- I mean, all of this is, is true in moderation. If you love the way coconut oil makes your curry taste, use coconut oil. It's not going to kill you to eat it once. Yeah. Um, but if you're, you know, if you're trying to eat as much coconut oil as you can to lower your risk of heart disease, you're doing something that just doesn't have much evidence behind it. And butter's not any better, is it? I mean, it's probably just as No, but it sure does taste Oh, I was about to say, you cannot, please don't diss butter. Come on. (laughs) Okay. So, but for the heart, we're not making any benefit for butter over coconut oil. Look, we pick our poison. Okay. I don't do everything right. (laughs) I don't eat everything I'm supposed to. I run so that I can eat chocolate whenever it's in front of me, you know, and you're a you, human you being, sort of, huh? She's what you can. Yeah. We yeah. can call her by her first name and know she's one of us, Molly. That's right. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, final question is from um, Marion. Uh, it's um, about um, HIT training, high-intensity interval training. So what are your thoughts about it as it relates to heart health? Um, there's The more that we learn about the different kinds of exercise we do, I think we're starting to learn more about that higher intensity is probably better for you. So the current exercise guidelines are um, that you sort of get two minutes credit of moderate intensity for every one minute of vigorous intensity exercise. So the guidelines are 75 
minutes of vigorous exercise or 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise per week um, as a minimum. So you, you sort of get a two for one credit, but it looks like we might actually be undervaluing the high intensity side of things that you, oh. it might actually be from a, you know, a health standpoint, more like a three to one or four to one in terms of what you gain. The way I interpret this for busy moms is, mm -hmm. or for busy humans is if you don't have time to do a whole lot of exercise, 10 minutes of high intensity training is going to get you some benefits. And mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a good way if you're crunched on time to, to maximize the effectiveness in terms of heart health of your training is to do more vigorous intensity work. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's an interesting uh, study done by some folks that are at Duke, um, Zach Zenko and Dan Ariely, uh, who showed that ramping down your exercise at the end of your exercise period makes you perceive it to be easier overall and makes you more likely to want to do it again. Oh. So the, the one caveat that I would say for folks that are doing high intensity interval training um, is it, you may trick yourself into thinking it was an easier exercise by making sure you force yourself to do a cool down or a ramp down period. Mm. So, uh, you know, if you're ending with, you know, a super high sprints and you finish the exercise and feel like, God, that was awful and you're less likely to do it, it's probably not going to help you as much. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, so I, I think it's probably, it's probably uh, good for all of us to start to incorporate more of that high intensity stuff into our exercise. But again, it does, this is an, another one of those moderation things that some of the benefits from it are seen with, you know, even less than 30% of the time you're spending being vigorous. So it, it doesn't have to be your entire exercise. You could do small doses of it with, you know, otherwise moderate intense run and get some benefits from it. Okay, well, now you've made me think of one more question, which is that um, how important for our hearts is it to do a cool down or a ramp down, which I like that term that you use? Um, you know, I mean, is it, you know, here we are, we're busy moms and we think, oh, I forgot to, you know, find my kids, you know, uh, report card that I need to sign to send back or something. Now I need to cut my run short and just run right in the back door and not do a cool down. Like, how bad is that for us? I think it's fine. The, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's fine that the, the two, the two caveats to that would be, um, you know, the, the, the evidence that at the end of a marathon, the sudden cardiac death risk increases perhaps from that catecholamine mm -hmm. surge. You know, you mm -hmm. might not, if you, if your run has been a 20 mile run and you realize you forgot to sign your kid's report card, mm -hmm. you know, don't accelerate that last mile maybe. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, a, a cool down is, is probably more important for the musculoskeletal side of things than it is for our, for the heart side of things. Oh, okay. okay. You know, Good at one. the end of the day, we, you know, we can sort of nitpick all of the how to do it. You do this heart rate or that heart rate or this speed at this number of minutes or whatever. But um, it, really the, the best data are that doing any running is better than no running. And there's a lot of different ways to do it. And they're all probably really good for the heart. So mm -hmm. if you're a high intense 20 minutes a day, every single day, great. If you're a, you know, slow plod two hours a week, two or three times a week, also fine. Um, you know, we're, we all run differently. And I, I would say that rather than figure out the way you're going to run based on, you know, what do you think is best for the heart, given the lack of data, run the way it makes you feel good, run the way that makes you want to keep doing it for years and years and years and not make it a fad and then quit. Right on. 
Good. Huh. You're one of us. You're one of our peeps, Anne-Marie. Uh, so. Use the coconut oil to moisturize, not tea. Because <laughs> you're going to live a long time. So use it on your face, not in your right. tea. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm so glad that you guys are thinking about, about heart health. And, um, you know, we, we spend a lot of time, uh, you know, as women talking about things like weight and exercise and, you know, all these other things. But, you know, I would I think if I had one message for the listeners would be, um, you know, make sure to get your all your other heart health risk factors checked out, blood pressure, cholesterol, glucose screenings. And if you have extra time or if you're really a go-getter and you want to organize a community event, um, try to increase the number of people out there who are trained in bystander CPR. I think from mm-hmm. a from a saving lives from sudden cardiac death standpoint, increasing the number of people who know how to do CPR if somebody collapses is probably the best thing that we could do. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. is a great idea. I'm going to sign up for a CPR class. Well, I say we do that together. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. let's yeah. do it. Maybe we could also put up, um, there's a lot, the American Heart Association has just a, a ton of great resources and maybe we could um, put something up on the, on the um, mm-hmm. Facebook or the yeah, website. The podcast notes. Yeah. Yeah. Just some, yeah, some references for folks who are interested in figuring out how do you even find a CPR class or how would you go about organizing a group event if that's something you wanted to do with your you know, running club. Right, right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was really enlightening for us. Oh, great. Well, thank yeah. you guys for having me on. I, I love your show. Um, uh, can't wait to hear. Can't wait to hear how it all turns out. Next up is Marla Sewell, the mother of four in Dallas, Texas, and a veteran of more than a dozen marathons who I have wanted to have on the podcast for more than two years since I first learned her story. Marla suffered a sudden cardiac arrest during a high-mileage week of training. Her quick-thinking, attentive husband saved her life by performing CPR. At long last, Marla, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So start by telling us about your family. Um, Four boys, including a set of twins. Wow. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, And I had my twins first. I know, I saw that. (laughs) Yeah, um, my twins are seniors right now, so they're about to turn 18. Mm -hmm. And um, then I have, very quickly after the twins were born, I had 18 months later, I had another boy. Uh-huh. And then three years after that, I had my, my fourth and final boy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. So, wow. So uh, t- three kids under the age of two, that must have just yes. been, your, your hands must have been full. Yes, it was busy. It was a busy time. It, it was a busy, I, I mean, I want to say 10 years, <laughs> kind of crazy. <laughs> it's been a busy 18 years, I bet. Yes, it has. <laughs> and it doesn't end. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's what we talk about a lot on the show, uh, that the problems just get bigger as the kids yes. get older. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you've been running for a while, I assume. When did you start running? And tell me about your exercise. Sure. Um, you know, I started running, I would say back in high school. So, you know, I've been running for a long time, um, ran through college. And then at, right after I graduated, I, I was living with a friend And we, this was back in 1990, we decided, no, I'm sorry, 91, we decided we wanted to run the Dallas White Rock Marathon. So we, at the time, really didn't know, you know, training programs weren't that popular. And I mean, they were just weren't that well known. And we Mm -hmm. were just kind of winging it. So I want to say the most, you know, the longest run we had ever done before that marathon was 
eight to 10 miles. So, you know, that's definitely not preparation enough. And, uh, you know, it was kind of tough. I mean, we definitely, we were just a little, we were cruising at the beginning and we hit the wall pretty early and, and struggled through the last half of that marathon. And of course, you know, when we finished, I was, convinced I was never going to run another marathon again. Of course. So I did uh-huh. not run another marathon for a long time until after my twins were born. So oh. big gap between okay. my first and second. Uh-huh. And then did you train a little differently? I did. So around, you know, around that time, you know, some of the running plans, I think we, I must've followed a Hal Higdon plan. Mm-hmm. You know, they had, they had come out. I think I bought the book and, uh, you know, followed the, either the beginner and then eventually the, the intermediate. Um, so the year after my boys were born, I did follow the training and I completed the marathon. So they were born in end of April and the marathon was December wow. 6th. Oh, wow. oh my God. So it's always early December. Yeah. So, um, pretty quickly after I had my twins and, and part of the impetus for me to run that marathon was a, of course, you know, pre baby, you know, body, but, more than anything, I just needed some stress relief from crying babies. Yeah. I just had to go outside and put my headphones on and, you know, de-stress. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And why do a 10K if you've got that going on at home? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm goal-oriented. So I definitely, I felt like, well, if I'm going to keep myself running, con- you know, consistently, I need a big goal, you know, because uh, a 10K wouldn't keep me training for for too long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a big goal. And so your friendships were born out of running? Yes, yes. Um, some of my closest friends. So the first was a high school friend, and um, we completed that one. Actually, my second marathon I did on my own. Um, but I did some of my training. I did the marathon on my own, but I did some of the training with a good friend in Chicago who had run the Chicago marathon. And I might add, I lived in Chicago at the time. Right. So, um, then after the first one, I pretty consistently ran, you know, a handful of marathons in the years following the birth of the first three. Mm -hmm. And then after the birth of the fourth, uh, two friends and I got involved with a running club here in Dallas, a training mm-hmm. program, and we got kind of serious about our training, did it, mm-hmm. you know, with a group and, and did some additional workouts. And um, so it was my third, no, it was, it was in 2008 on my 40th birthday, mm-hmm. I ran the Boston Marathon. So I qualified wow. at 39 and ran the Boston Marathon at 40. Awesome. And then I've had a couple since then. Yeah. Do you still run with that high school friend? You know, she lives across town. So no, not as regularly. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when I go over to White Rock Lake, which is here in Dallas, we'll, you know, we'll see each other. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I tend to run through my neighborhood with friends who live here now. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, Marla. So talk us through what happened to you on Labor Day weekend 2011. Okay. Um so a good friend and I were training. Um, I was training that year for the Chicago Marathon. We were both training for Chicago. And we were not doing the training program with the group that time. That was, uh, you know, we had done it a couple of years before, and we just decided to go off on our own. And so mm-hmm. we were doing the same training, but kind of doing it independently. And, uh, you know, Texas is pretty darn hot in the summer. And sure. our 
peak week of training was at the end of August going into September. So Mm -hmm. we ran that week, um, you know, I want to say 10 miles on Wednesday, uh, eight miles on Thursday, rest on Friday, then 22 miles on Saturday. Mm -hmm. And then on Sunday, we did a, like a brief run just to, you know, relax our legs. And then Mm -hmm. I went and played tennis with my husband. So Mm -hmm. needless to say, it was hot and I had, I had pretty much overexerted. And, Mm -hmm. um, so I, uh, went to bed that night. My husband and I actually were, we were up and we were, this is Sunday night of Labor Day weekend. We were watching the U S open tennis tournament and Mm -hmm. he wanted to go to sleep and I wanted to continue watching the match that was on. So I went up to our guest bedroom, which is on the third floor of our house. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I went up there about 1030 and I have to say, I don't have any memory. I don't have any memory of that mm-hmm. night. I don't really have any memory. I've kind of rebuilt my memory of the week leading mm-hmm. up to the event just by talking to friends who said, oh, yeah, we ran mm-hmm. this and we did this. But mm-hmm. um, it's interesting. Sudden cardiac arrest kind of wipes your your memory for, you know, for a while. And um, wow. so I went up at 1030 and I must have woken up around 1230 and we are assuming that I felt clammy or I was starting to get some of the, you know, the signs of uh, impending sudden cardiac arrest. So I went into the mm. bathroom <clears throat> to turn on either the bathtub or shower. We're not sure, but I, we, I got the faucet running. And when I was leaning over to adjust it, I my heart stopped beating and I fell into the bathtub but I fell in because mm. I was leaning to turn off the knobs. I fell in mm. face under the faucet. So I kind of twisted and mm. my face was under the faucet. Oh, Lord. Yeah. And my, my husband is a light sleep sleeper, luckily. And he mm-hmm. kind of, he woke up and he heard water running and he was kind of, you know, confused as to why at, at one in the morning there would be water running in our house. Mm-hmm. But then he fell back sure. asleep and oh, wow. he woke up. About 15 minutes later, and the water was still running. And his first thought was that I had um, turned on the water and went down to the kitchen and just left it. So he came upstairs ready, you know, angry, you know, ready to turn off the water and then yell down at me. And when he stepped on the carpet leading into the bathroom, it was soaking wet and the bathroom was flooded. And um, he walked over to the bathtub and, you know, water was spilling over the side. And I was face up like I said, with my head under the Mm. faucet, eyes open, and my face was completely blue. So I Mm. had been under, we want to say, for a good 15 minutes, if not more. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Jeez. Did you, like, have a near-death experience? Do you remember any of that? Yeah, no. People have asked me that. I, um, you know, so when I woke up in the hospital, they, they, Long story short, the paramedics came. My husband got me revived doing CPR. So, you know, he said he did it, he thinks like five minutes, but it felt like an eternity. And I started shallow breathing. I never regained consciousness. So he turned me on my side so I wouldn't choke on the water and then went and called the paramedics. So they took me to the hospital and I was in an induced coma um, and hypothermia. They put you in hypothermia to prevent Mm. brain damage. So I was there for 48 hours before I started to wake up. So 
the first, the only thing I remember was waking up and everyone was in my room and I was very confused because my best friend from Chicago that I used to run with was at my side. Um, And my dad who lives in California was there. And then the room was just full of my family and my closest friends. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was very confused. I had no idea what had happened, but Mm -hmm. getting back to your question about how, what I saw, I, I didn't see any light. I didn't, but I, I felt very peaceful. So, Mm. you know, the only thing I can say is it, it really felt very peaceful and that has given me comfort, you know, moving Mm -hmm. forward, you know, just my personal, Mm -hmm. um, view on on what happens when we die so yeah and when you were in a coma do you could you hear people do you remember like people talking reading to you nothing like that no the only the the only thing I remember is they you know they were keeping me in a coma and then I think they were changing my IV and I started to wake up and at that point they didn't know if I was going to live or die, but I started to wake up. So they knew I was going to live, but they had no idea. They thought I'd really be a vegetable. Yeah. And um, so I started to wake up and then the doctor said, well, let's slowly wake her up and warm her and see what happens. And um, so they did that over the next 24 hours. And then, like I said, I, I that first thing I remember was coming to, you know, waking up after that. Mm-hmm. So not when I was in the coma, nothing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they give you a defibrillator, right? Yeah. So I, um, I was in the hospital and they really didn't know what had happened mm-hmm. to me. I mean, you know, I didn't know my heart had stopped. Nobody knew. Um, they just knew that I had drowned in the bathtub and, and we really didn't know what had happened. So when I was in the ICU, not in the ICU, but once they discharged me from ICU, I stayed in the hospital for a week and they did a whole battery of tests on my heart. And they didn't find anything, Mm. you know, none of the, Mm. no enlarged heart, no long QT syndrome, nothing like that. Mm. And, you know, they were a little puzzled. And before they let me go, they said, you know, we want to do one last test. Um, It's called an EP test, an electrophysiology test. And, you know, they said, we're going to take you up to the lab and it's a quick test. You should be in and out in half an hour. Mm. So they put you to sleep and they started to do the test. And I guess they stimulate your test with little, um, a little electric, uh, a little electric uh, thing that's, you know, they try to stimulate your heart with it. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess when they started to stimulate my heart, my heart immediately went into ventricular fibrillation, Mm -hmm. which is what causes sudden cardiac arrest. And my heart stopped on the table. So they had to shock me on the table. And right then, they realized that I had had V-fib, which is sudden cardiac arrest. And before even letting me out, they kept me under and they put the defibrillator in. Oh. So it's it's a precautionary um, measure for anyone who's had sudden cardiac arrest. And how does that, how have you had to modify what you do for training and fitness since then? You know, not, I, they said, you know, and all my doctors said, you, now that you have this, mm-hmm you are the safest person out there running because mm-hmm. if anything happened to your heart, this is going, this is going to start it beating again. Mm-hmm. And they really didn't have any, you know, they were really like, you have no, you can do whatever you want. There's no wow. restrictions on what you do. Uh-huh. So I, <laughs> I ran, let's see, that was in September. And then the following January, two running friends and I went to Phoenix and ran the rock and roll half. Wait, wait, and wait, 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 wait. Four months later, you ran a yes. half marathon. 
I did. I did. Granted, it was early September that you had the incident. You know, so were you pregnant too? Yeah, right. Pregnant with triplets. Yeah. Complications. I had some complications, which was interesting because when I was training leading up to that, and when I ran the race, I really felt like an elephant was sitting on my chest. Like they kept assuring me Mm. that it was fine, Mm. but I went back in, and what they found is that when they um, they hooked the defibrillator up to my heart, they had like poked the pericardium or of my heart, oh. which is the, it's what surrounds your heart. And mm-hmm. my heart had been like bleeding into oh. the pericardium. Oh, and no. they said, once they figured that, they said, it's not dangerous, but it just will cause a lot of, you know, it, it makes it hard for you to breathe. So it was, it was a tough half marathon, I will say, but I was <laughs> determined to finish it. And I did. Yeah. So, um, a new lease on life. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. And, um, you know, it was once I started feeling better from that, you know, I continued running, but I did have one other incident related. Mm. Um, So I ran that half marathon and then 14 months, I think it was, well, it was December again. So it was uh, 11 months later, I ran the Dallas White Rock Marathon. Oh my gosh. So 14 months, that was 14 months after my heart. And Mm -hmm. I ran the race and I felt horrible at the end. I felt like I had been hit by a truck Mm. and I came home and I was so scared. I had my husband take me to the emergency room and, you know, at first the doctor said, well, you must have overdone it. You know, you shouldn't, you know, they, they just were thinking that I had like low potassium, low magnesium. Well, it turns Mm -hmm. out they did a test in the, uh, in the emergency room and I had a staff septic staff infection from my defibrillator oh my my gosh i ran that marathon with a septic staff infection which kept me in the hospital for two weeks and then after that i carried an iv antibiotic bag around for six more weeks to clear up the infection wow i'd like to say I've been a little you're, I'd like to say that you're you're a tough bird there, Marla. Yeah. Well, it takes you know a lot to, now, to take you I'm down. I'm telling you these stories, but I've honestly cut it back. I'm much more of a recreational runner now. So uh-huh. even though it sounds intense, I have mellowed <laughs> with age. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so was it a congenital heart condition? No. Did they no, ever they, get a they, diagnosis on you? Yeah. No, they never found anything in those tests. But the only thing that they could speculate was that when they drew my blood when I was in the hospital, my potassium and magnesium levels were really low. And that's kind mm-hmm. of an effect of when you lose potassium and magnesium through sweating. So I sweat mm-hmm. qu- quite a bit when I run. And I mm-hmm. must have been depleted of potassium and magnesium. And that controls your heart rhythm, those two so, minerals. So they think this was a kind of a self-induced yes. heart yes. issue. Yes. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah, they. Yeah, it's got to no be really rare, though. Effects. They think it was just a flu huh. with the the hot weather wow. and sweating. Yeah. Huh. Oh my goodness. Were you taking electrolytes when you were training? Uh, yeah, I mean, I certainly was drinking some, you know, Gatorade, and I think uh-huh. at the time my post run drink consisted more of chocolate milk. You know, because a lot of people you drink the chocolate uh-huh. milk in place of sure. it. So I don't think I was getting enough of the potassium and magnesium from that as my post run mm-hmm. uh, drink. So, you know, I had a fair amount, but not enough, clearly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You needed some new yes, tablets. Yes, I have new now. <laughs> I have all. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> good, good, wow, good, good. That, that's just 
crazy and awful, but my goodness, you yeah. you soldiered through. <laughs> yeah. Look at you. I did. <laughs> so, and I know you have to go in a second, but I just wanted to ask you, uh, so you um, do, do you still do things for the American Heart Association to educate people? I do. I do. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, so the year after um, my heart incident, I spoke at the Go Red luncheon here in Dallas and, mm-hmm. um, and they did a video, you know, of my story and I mm-hmm. have been to the event every year since then. Oh, and um, so I'm, I'm pretty involved with the Go Red and mm-hmm. um, I've also gotten involved with, there's an org, a local organization here um, where a young boy had sudden cardiac arrest on the football field and passed away. And his mother has started an oh. organization that does screenings for, you know, for heart, for student athletes. Oh, yeah. And because mm-hmm. I have the boys, I got interested in that. And they were, they're athletes. Mm-hmm. My sons are athletes. So I volunteer mm-hmm. for them twice a year and um, do the heart screenings. I don't do the screening myself. I just check people mm-hmm. in. Uh, when they mm-hmm. come, the students come to get their heart screened. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's great. And, and um, yeah, and that, and that it was Carrie's quick thinking that, I mean, I yes. think a lot of, I mean, I think a lot of husbands mm-hmm. wouldn't have woken up. No, no mine he, wouldn't have. He, I mean, he reacted, <laughs> yeah. you know, he hadn't done CPR since he was a Boy Scout, but, um, wow. you know, he said he did, doesn't even know if he did it perfectly, but he did it sure. enough that it, you know, that it got me. Mm-hmm. breathing again mm-hmm. so it's better to do something rather than nothing right and certainly he was highly motivated to, yeah. to yeah. yeah yeah that's great oh well thank you so much marla for sharing your story and and um i'm so glad that we finally got you on the podcast yeah thank you so yeah. much happy valentine's Thanks. day yeah you yeah too. yeah exactly yeah all right take okay, care marla bye-bye bye All right, for Train Like a Mother Club Corner, a little different because I'm going to do it. It's an update from a guest on episode 290, Striving for Big Goals. It comes from Kelly Anderson. And I think once I start talking, you'll remember her story. She says, dropping a line to give you an update on my Yukon Arctic Ultra Marathon experience. The marathon took place on February 1st at the beginning of our current cold snap. The temperature at the 10.30 a.m. start was negative 30 degrees Celsius, which is negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit. I'll let that sink in uh, for just a sec. Uh, um, This race was challenging in ways I couldn't even imagine. I felt completely prepared physically. I knew I could cover the miles required. I felt prepared in terms of the cold and what gear I needed depending on the temperature and conditions, though I was hoping for temps around negative 25 degrees Celsius. Those five degrees make a difference, I guess. Um, I was not happy with my preparation for fuel and hydration wise, though, and would definitely make changes if I were to do this race this long and this cold again. I was good during the race, but really struggled for a few days after with headaches and nausea. Nausea, I was battling a cold before the race, so that may have been related to that. She said, I wasn't expecting such a mental challenge. At the extreme temperature, my GPS watch was extremely glitchy and not showing accurate mile marks. Then it died. My phone with Strava was on, but it kept under all my layers, so I couldn't reference it without freezing, and it did run out of battery around mile 18. The course had no mile markers. There was a small aid station at the halfway mark. I didn't use earbuds for any music, podcast, audiobooks, because they were would have been too cold to have in my ears. It was just me and my mind without the mental distraction of mile math. I was impressed with how well I did with that. I had done some mental training, including perform like a mother with Justin Ross, and I think that helped more than anything. Also, I kept telling myself, you told thousands of people on the podcast that you were doing this race. (laughs) Just keep going. I crossed the finish line at 5.21 p.m., placing... 
I, let me do the math on that. She started at 1030, 521. So that was almost seven hours. Um, placing ninth out of 18 marathoners. There was only one DNF for the marathon. Thank you and the AMR team for training plans and support. I would never have gotten to the starting line without you. Well, Kelly, hats off to you. You included some pictures. You looked seriously badass. And <laughs> my goodness, that was a challenge in all sorts of ways. So um, kudos to you. Um, hey, real quick, two things. Um, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram if you don't already. On both those platforms, we are at the Mother Runner. Thank you very much. And also, we just announced that we are recording a podcast that will be in front of a live audience at the Goo headquarters in Berkeley, California. Going to be uh, Molly will be there. Uh, Dimity will also be there, and our guests are going to be. Uh, Magdalena Louis Boulet, who has won the Western States 100. She is um, a nutritionist at Goo. And then also just, just this just in, um, uh, we're going to be joined by Alicia Montano. Molly, I think you didn't even know that. Um, she is the absolutely fabulous mother runner, Olympian, um, who just had her second baby this fall. And she was a guest on our podcast Um I think in late summer, maybe, I don't know, sometime within the past couple months. So super excited for that. We have, I will put the Eventbrite listing in there. There's, it's free. We just need to get a head count for the swag. And so it's a goo, so you can expect it to be great. It'll be great. Um, so, all right. Our podcast today was produced in Portland, Oregon by Alex Ward, who is laughing at my joke from Sounds Like Pictures. <laughs> I think mocking, maybe. Uh, Many happy miles.